from and welcome to indoor air quality radio it's iaq radio for friday august 5th 2016 we're back live this week it's episode 425 my name is radio joe hughes and i'm coming to you live from central city pennsylvania studio d our engineer john you gotta have faith is back at the controls and joining me from joining me from studio c back in mckee's rocks is the z-man cliff zlotnick Hey, Joe. Hello, everybody. Good day, Cliff. Just back from summer camp. Had a great time at the Building Science Corporation's 20th annual summer camp and actually got to see today's guest do a presentation at summer camp. We're going to talk a little bit about that and about a bunch of other issues today with Dr. Mark Hernandez out of the University of Colorado. Before we get started, though, we've got to thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IEQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at IAQtraining.com and check out our uh, fall event, the uh, Healthy Building Summit 3, will be October 20 and 21 in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania. All right, Cliff, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com. If you're listening to the show live, you can also text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations! To both John Lapotere, Indoor Air Quality Solutions, Orlando, Florida, and Victor Cafaro, Richmond, Virginia, who tied on answering our last IQ Radio trivia question. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, August 5th, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for this week's IQ Radio trivia question. Name the word defined as the study of airborne microorganisms, pollen, spores, and seeds, especially as agents of infection. Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Cliff. Dr. Mark Hernandez received all his degrees and did a postdoctoral tenure in civil and environmental engineering department at the University of California at Berkeley. 
After several years of civil engineering practice, he joined the University of Colorado faculty in 1996, where he is now a full professor. Dr. Hernandez is a registered professional engineer and an expert on the quantitation and remediation of bioaerosols. A generation of his research lies in characterizing the biological aspects of air pollution, both indoors and out. With respect to environmental investigations, his aerobiology characterization work has focused on large-scale disasters, including bioaerosols generated by major metropolitan floods. Dr. Hernandez's research group is based in an environmental microbiology laboratory, which also houses the largest bioaerosol chamber in the United States with full environmental controls. Since its commissioning, this laboratory has been active in aerobiology research supported by the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, the U.S. EPA, and various private and public companies. Dr. Hernandez was recent recipient of the Lindbergh Foundation Environmental Award and a National Science Foundation's Early Career Award for Bioaerosol Research. We are pleased to have him with us on the show today. We've got some intro music for Dr. Hernandez. Growing old in my heart. Growing All right. So, hello, Mark. Do we have you on the line? You do. All right. Great and to have you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure, and, and it was nice to spend a little time up at summer camp, and then uh, prior to that in uh, at your hometown there, at least your current hometown. How did you, you know, you, you, you went to school in uh, California at Berkeley, and uh, you were an engineering uh, student, and then you ended up in the indoor environmental quality world, the bioaerosol world. How did that transition take place? Well, I can tell you I didn't plan that. Um, I did uh, most of the work uh, prior to my arrival at Colorado was all in, in wastewater, so water and wastewater. And my training was in classical sanitary engineering, which is uh, a nice way to say sewage treatment processes. So I learned all about the microorganisms in, um, in water and wastewater and how to disinfect them and so on and uh, worked in a lot of treatment plants as a process engineer. And uh, I always wondered how those microbes in that water were getting out and floating around in the air and affecting the operators in the treatment plant. So that's what spurned my interest. But I've been trained in, in sanitary engineering, and I crossed all those skills over into uh, basically the aerosol matrix and have been working in that for 20 years. Hmm. And how did... I'm curious, I, I, after hearing that, I'm wondering, what, what type of exposure do these guys have that work in, in the uh, sewage treatment plants? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And, um, you know, it has a very interesting environment, right? We, we inject lots of water, I mean, lots of air into wastewater to treat it, which um, is basically the same phenomenon as opening up a soda pop can. You've got all this air partitioning out of there. Um, with uh, lots of volume, very high energy, and it brings microbes into the atmosphere. And some treatment plants are actually completely indoors. Um, so we don't know those exposures, and it's a, it's a major aspect of my research program right now. Hmm. But a lot of the operators at the treatment plants that I had worked in had asked me that, 
and you know some were complaining of illness, malaise, so on, and they were associating it with their their work. But it's a ripe area of research, and we're working um, diligently to answer that question. I have a friend who did that for years, and, and I I always wondered if maybe he'd have more infections or or do you know anything yet with respect to that? Well, the, as you know, even with um, <laughs> the entire. IAQ arena and, and our building stock, it's a very complicated question to answer. And um, what we know is, is, you know, moisture and growing things are bad. It's the link between that exposure and, you know, human health and mass that is, is a cause, you know, from a causal sense is difficult to answer. And we don't have that data in, for occupational exposure in the wastewater environment yet. So, um, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a long time to, to answer that question. Um, and, and in the meantime, um, I, you know, I can say just based on my experience, most of the wastewater treatment plant operators are, are pretty healthy people. Um, and, uh, I, you know, we don't see a causal link there, but th- that question's always there. You know, is this contrib- is this exposure contributing to any illness, um, uh, occupational or not? associated with that environment. So good question, Joe. I'm, I'm in the process of answering it, but it, it's going to be a little while. <laughs> well, and, you know, part of the reason I ask is it, it seems, and, and Cliff's got a follow-up too, it seems that that might help us with respect to people who are cleaning up in water-damaged buildings and water-damaged environments and after sewage uh, backflows and things like that, and I, I'm pretty certain there's not much on their health issues either. I, I agree. And um, I, I, it's one thing I'm hoping both industries would do, um, although they're very different uh, in, in terms of you know, their origins. Um, the occupational exposure question is the same, and I'm hoping... Um, some industries partners could come together so we can do a survey on that. I think that's a very important thing. And if we surveyed the workers in, in wastewater treatment and surveyed the workers in, in uh, remedial cases that are involved with sewage cleanup, I, I think that would be a, a very important first step. But it's a big country, and that's a lot of data to gather. But I think it's something very much worth doing. Hmm. Cliff? Yeah, um, I think one of the common denominators really between remediation and uh, the sewage plant workers is plumbers and it's you know in all honesty uh, I'm 66 years old I don't think I've ever seen a plumber wear a respirator and I think the only time I've seen them wear some sort of protective glove was to protect them against greases or wheels or or something like that no yeah and same on on my side of the street, um, and I, I, I agree with you, and that, you know, it's, uh, it's a skill, it's rewarding work, but um, uh, as tough as they are, exposure is exposure, and we really don't know it. I've never seen them use PPE either. Um, they just get in, rip up their hands, and, and, you know, wash them when they're done, but who knows what they're breathing or who knows what's on their skin, and I think that's worth a look as well. Well, you know, when you spoke at summer camp, there was a, a group of you, and, and it was more of a, um, a microbi- microbiology of the indoor environment kind of update for the people who attend that. But a lot of your presentation was on uh, research that you had done after flooding events. And I thought, we'd, you know, that 
kind of ties into what we're just discussing. Plus, I thought that would be an interesting way to start out today. Can you tell listeners a little more about the types of events you were involved in and then what type of study uh, you, you, you know, you, I guess, ran um, after these events? Boy, that's a, a lot. I'm a, that's a long-winded story that I'll try to keep tight. I'm trying um, to think, how do we but, break that down into, in better chunks? But I'm sure you can do it. Well, Joe's, uh, I, first of all, I, I have to say I found that uh, summer school really rewarding to, to really see, you know, practitioners' perspectives and be able to interact with them um, on an on a individual and human scale and, and uh, listen to the questions and all that. So it was, pr- it was pretty enlightening for me, um, for someone who's been, you know, in the academic sector now 20 years. Um, but to get back to the, the story I told, I was one of, of three academics there, James Scott from University of Toronto, Jeff Siegel, um, who's really a great building scientist, um, James being a microbiologist, and then me kind of in between where I'm a civil environmental engineer that, that's got some updated microbiology uh, research tools. Um, I think it was a nice team, and, and I think we had a, a broad spectrum of presentations. Mine in particular was dealing or, or telling the story of all the floods um, that I've dealt with since arriving in Colorado, six in total, um, some in my hometown, um, others in, uh, unfortunately, uh, Louisiana after um, Hurricane Katrina and surveying homes there, La Junta, Colorado, and surveying homes that had been reclaimed from flood damage, all of which had elevated bioaerosol levels, and using the most modern microbiological tools uh, we were able to show that even after remediation, significant numbers of houses still have either elevated levels of bioaerosols compared to other homes that hadn't that hadn't uh, been impacted by flood damage that were of similar age, building characteristics, or so on, or had a different ecology. They didn't necessarily have different loads, but they had different microbes in them. Um, and then floods here in Boulder in, in our uh, in our commercial building stock and in our residential housing stocks, um, most notably following the 2013 uh, flood that we had here in Boulder. And same kind of story, just course differences in, in aerobiology between flood-impacted homes and not. So that's the theme of the story. Do we have any health data to link with that? No. Do we have, um, uh, have we gone back and followed up? No, uh, just simply because of economy and, and priorities that we've faced over the last 10 years. So um, getting money to go back and look at it out over the long term has been uh, pretty difficult, uh, uh, to say the least. But I think we've brought some new tools to the industry, um, which I'm hoping we'll talk about later in the show. Is that a good synopsis? It is, and, and I think we can go from there and maybe pick out some specifics that I think in, our listeners would be interested in. Um, so maybe we'll start with the foundation. In each of these cases, you were dealing with uh, flood water, and that would be categorized. You know, I, we talked about the fact that you are familiar with the IICRC's categorization of um, water damage. There's either category one, two, or three. And um, Let's start with, I, I assume, in each of those cases, these were considered Category 3 Blackwater events. Um, yes, uh, and, and that was simply, so these were freshwater floods, you know, very close to 
um, uh, freshwater river sources very close, um, uh, with exception to uh, New Orleans, right, which was uh, brackish water. Mm-hmm. That was uh, Pontchartrain and the, and the breaching of the canals and so on. Um, but here in Colorado, uh, um, they've all been, you know, pretty adjacent freshwater and some would argue pristine freshwater sources. So these were all Category 3s based on contact time. So it was several days before in mass we could get to these houses and, um, you know, get the water out of them, get them dried out, get the materials out and so on. So, yeah, unfortunately, they were all Category 3s. And when you did the background oh before we go there i've got a text i want to first get the text question um speaking of uh foundations did did the houses that you dealt with have basements crawl spaces built on slabs a variety yeah uh, at least the houses in colorado are all not all excuse me in boulder um which is and you know most of it's a relatively young city they're they're um slab just below grade um, and uh, we have a very hierarchical floodplain here. So um, the houses not in the floodplains have, you know, full built-out basements. Those in the floodplains don't. Um, and uh, so most of what we were looking at, and be- because it was a pretty big flood, were um, newer homes with uh, basements that had been built out and inhabited. Okay. So, in, in that case, and of course, New Orleans, that's not the case, right? There's no basements. The water table's high. They're below um, mean sea level. They're surrounded by water, so no basements there um, so, at all. And in La Junta, Colorado, the same thing. No basements there. And, and you used various types of um, assessment in, in these buildings, and, and maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about the differences between and i'm trying to kind of group them all together for a reason hopefully that'll kind of you know will help uh um, yeah. pull this together a little better in the end but um can you tell listeners a little bit about how you assess the conditions going in and then um how you assess them after the remediation well we use the same tools and you know grossly at, at least in in the most modern terms what we can do now um, is we can go in and we can ID who is there um, as well as get a direct count on how much is there floating in the air. So um, the mo- most modern method um, is, is to actually take an air sample and pull the DNA out of it and sequence it, and you can tell exactly who's there with a reasonable degree of confidence. And um, fortunately, there's been all the work that's come out of AIDS and cancer research and high throughput sequencing has now crossed over into the environmental sector and those tools are available to us. Um, is there some uncertainty in it? Yeah, but um, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty definitive stuff. So, you know, I can take a surface that's been uh, wetted or I can take an air sample if I can get enough air, pull the DNA out, sequence it, and have a relatively high degree of confidence of what microbes are in there. So that's who. And then there's how much. And um, we've used uh, microscopy in the indoor quality sector for a long time, right? Take mm-hmm. aerosol cassettes, Burkhard samplers, and we go in and, and try to ID um, not only who's there based on phenotypic, that is, what do the spores look like or the microbes look like and how they stain, but we can get a count. And the microscope doesn't lie. 
And, and so we can get, if we take a, an air sample, we can catch them in an impinger or on a filter and, and go to the microscope and directly count. And there's a much like high throughput DNA sequencing, there are now high throughput automated microscopes that can help us with the counting and take the, the human factor of, and slowness, you know, take subjectivity and slowness out of that process. So um, this new generation of optical-based particle counters can give us a total count of particles, OPC, which many of us use, um, but there's also fluorescence-based instruments that can give us the fraction of the total uh, particles that are bacteria, fungi, pollens, or spores. So um, we can get a good idea in modern terms of who's there from DNA and a good idea with high-throughput microscopy of how much is there. And we were able to bring these tools to bear both before, during, and after the flooding events in, in these venues. So the idea is to hopefully after flood and after the remediation, the construction's been done, the techs have been in, um, that what's present after the flooding is the same or less than what happened before the flood or in homes that haven't been hit, and that the ecology is not threatening. There's no pathogens. Uh, it's not markedly different than what's outside and so on. So that's the idea. And Cliff, go ahead. Yeah, um, Mark, what sort of difference if any, do you think the type of construction made? You know, it, it would seem to me as a former remediator that, you know, if I was dealing with poured cement or if I was dealing with exposed concrete foundation, that would be relatively easy to remediate compared to, you know, some framing materials that they decided to leave in and, you know, a, a, an area that was inhabited, you know, previously, you know, they're trying to save money. They may not have insurance. The insurance companies trying to save money. Was there any difference in uh, how raw the, uh, the places were uh, following remediation? Boy, you know, that's a great, great question and is, a, you know, a multi-million dollar question. And as you heard in summer camp from, from uh, Jeff Siegel and from those who have been in the business of a long, you know, a long time, um, you know, materials are vastly different. It makes sense that their ability to host microbes when wet is different um, based on their porosity, based on their ability to hold water, um, based on how much organic carbon they would have available if wetted. Um, we heard Halavin say, and, and uh, Jeff Siegel as well, drywall is not drywall is not drywall, right? Um, they're not all the same. And one wetted can produce certain microbiology while another wetted would produce other. Um, to get to your specific point, you know, about concrete and wood frame and all that, everything that I've been involved with, fortunately or unfortunately, has been wood frame housing, um, you know, on a simple slab foundation. So I haven't, I haven't been involved with a breadth of diversity in building materials simply because, A, I'm in, in more of the modern West, and uh, New Orleans, at least in the areas I was, Gentilly, Ninth Ward, uh, St. Bernard, was all um, relatively older houses, wood frame houses on, a, on simple elevated slab or stilts, uh, just because there are water tables there, and those were the building materials they had. So I don't have a lot of experience with this other stuff, and I think it's a great question. It's something we need to look at. Um, and, and, you know, big country, you know, lots of different building materials, how they behave when they're wet in those different climates, boy. Um, you, you know, what, 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 
what was interesting is I also did some building investigations uh, post Katrina, as, as well. And and one of the things that we found, which was, you know, at least unusual to us, is you know typically these homes would have a flood line. You could see the high water mark, and yeah. what we found unusual was generally below that water line there was very little fungal growth on materials but yet above that there was all sorts of fungal growth and you know you know we we weren't sure if it was oil in the water or pesticides or other types of chemicals or maybe you know bacteria had an opportunity to consume food source and you know fungi didn't have anything to eat or or whatever but it was kind of unusual we thought yeah, and it's, um, you know, that, that question still looms. And, you know, the water chemistry in the Katrina flood zone was, you know, really varied clearly, um, you know, polluted with wastewater, uh, petroleum hydrocarbons. I mean, it, w- it was quite a mess. And you bring up a good point. Maybe um, the building materials that were saturated with this, you know, relatively polluted water, um, uh had some condition when the water receded that microbial growth in mass couldn't progress, but where the water had wicked um, above these lines, and I saw the same thing that you did in, in many homes, um, that, you know, that was, these, these were moist surfaces as opposed to saturated surfaces, and they didn't have the same response at all. And I, I remember seeing exactly what you're saying, um, and unfortunately we'll never know. Um, there were a lot of investigations, you know, into the water chemistry there, some done by my colleagues here. But, uh, you know, those water samples were grab samples. They weren't composite. They were all over the place. We didn't have them in real time. It was completely after the fact. So, unfortunately, we'll never know. And, um, you know, it's a mess. We're still mopping up. And and uh, it it's, uh, you know, a continuing story that I, that I hope we have the resources to, to go back and check out. You know, you mentioned conditions, and I want to go back a step and then then come forward again. Um, We mentioned condition one, condition two, condition three, which is the way the IICRC S500 breaks these things down, primarily based on where the water came from, so the, the origin of the water, but then it also can change based on time, et cetera. And I'm just wondering, as a scientist and a researcher, um... Does that do those conditions make sense to you? Is it something you think we could do a better job with as an industry, or you know, some general thoughts? Well, I mean, I think you know, as as an industry, we can all do a better job, but we've got you know, these, we've got a huge task. You know, we've got a large building stock, limited resources, um, and it's kind of all over the board when you get to a job, what, what resources would be available to do it, what it, what the job looked like before you arrived. So I, I understand where the IICRC regs came from, um, and, and they make sense, right? Was it fresh or dirty water source? How long has that water been in contact with the building materials? So it's kind of, you know, is it white, brown, or black? You know, category one, two, or three. Um, but the fact of the matter is, when we get in there, it's it's could be anywhere in between and three sizes doesn't fit all if you really back up and look at it It, it's it's a continuum and if if we came at it with some of the tools like i was discussing with you earlier 
to try to get an assessment, you know, was there sewage contamination, even though it has been in contact with the building surfaces, say, for more than 72 hours, that water's still clean, the, say the it was a tile floor and that was clean and, and the potential to get microbial growth afterwards isn't particularly high, why would we have to have it a Category 3? So um, I, I would much rather look at this like a continuum of things with, with contextual tools that can tell us this has a high probability for growth, this doesn't regardless of contact time, how dirty was it, how dirty is it, is there microbes growing in the water now, and this is bar, you know, a sewage spill or something like that, but um, I, I'm hoping that we can have a different approach, a continuous approach um, in the future rather than these three discrete small, medium, or large, or black, brown, or white, or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I certainly understand the logic of the approach, and it, it's, it's conservative, right? Mm -hmm. It's conservative. So that's not a bad thing. Um, but we may be spending a lot of more money or time um, because of that. Um, and, and I'm hoping the insurers and the remediators and the property owners can get together and look at it that way in the interest of economics rather than being conservative. And again, in the absence of wastewater, right? right. A sewage spill or freshwater brings sewage into it or a, a sewage line break in a, in a property. Well, that's always and been I, a, Go ahead. You remember uh, 9-11 we had, after 9-11 we had that, uh, you know, the color-coded threat, you know, threat level one, two, imminent, and so on. It was color-coded. Right. Um, and they were discreet, right? They were discreet. Mm -hmm. Red meant it's going to happen. We behave a certain way. And really, it's a continuum, right? It's a rainbow. Threats come and go. They wane. There's, there's not, it's not, you know, the only thing that I view like that is pregnancy. Either you're pregnant or you're not, right? <laughs> yeah. That's not how these things work. <laughs> that, that's not how these things work. There, there's a lot of gray between, or not a gray, but there's a lot of um, slough between the boundaries. And, and if we can, the new tools can help us do that. You know, real-time microscopy of water and air, DNA, just counting dirt, right, in the water. You know, is there a high potential for microbial growth or not? How much organic carbon is there? Maybe a three shouldn't be a three, it should be a two. Or maybe some clear water's got a bunch of pathogens in it, you know, Legionella or cholera, and we, we should treat it like a three. Who knows? Um, but I, I think it's another ripe area for research. And some of the new tools may help us with that. I agree. And, you know, one of the things you, you sort of mentioned is, you know, when that water originally gets into the building from whatever source, if there are not pathogens in it or there are not uh, certain bacteria in it, then they're not ever going to be in it, I guess, uh, or viruses, etc. just because it sits for days. Now, you might get fungal growth or, you know, other things, but is that accurate to say? Um, boy, I, I, uh, accurate, uh, is not the word I think we want to use here, Joe. I think, um, is it appropriate in context? And you, you raise a good point, you know, um, and I was trying to do this by way of example, you know, you flood water on a tile floor that's clean, um, in a hospital or bathroom or whatever, and it sits for a couple of days. It's, you know, fresh water on a, on a clean tile, maybe that's wicked up into a little bit of the drywall, or if the wall's tiled, you're not going to get a lot of penetration. Why, do, why should that, after 72 hours, be considered a Cat 3? Right. Um, it's, right. It doesn't bring a lot of microbes in. There's not a lot for microbes to eat. Um, likely not going to take off, right? Well. So um, that's, that, that's the context, the appropriateness I was trying to bring in there. Um, maybe, you know, 
in Pennsylvania, they call it accurate. <laughs> That's cool. But yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, I would definitely agree with you. Okay. So there's, there's other, other things I, I CRC doesn't look at. It's just time and source, right? Right. And it's, it's more complicated than that. And maybe, maybe we can just add a couple more tools to help us with those complications. Well, in the second half of this interview, I'd like to talk a little more about some of those tools. So we've kind of set the foundation. We've got to stop and, and thank our sponsors and, and pay a few bills. Uh, but when we come back, I want to go into a little more about the, the results you got in the sampling after the flooding and then move into the new tools and techniques available to maybe be able to uh, make it a little more uh, accurate, for lack of a better term at this point. So let's stop and thank our sponsors. We'll be back with Dr. Mark Hernandez in about 90 seconds. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Mark Hernandez from the University of Colorado. And, uh, Mark, I'm curious, you know, you have did a lot of sampling before and after remediation of uh, these flooded buildings. And I'm wondering, I know this can be difficult to do, if you can kind of summarize for us your thoughts on um, how effective remediation was and, and what kind of um, results you were seeing before, during, and after. Boy, that's a biggie. Um, I'll, I'll try to do that in words. Uh, and, and I'm going to go back to the analogy that I used earlier, not the analogy, but the categories I used earlier in the show, and that is who's there and how many, right? Both of which are, are important to us. And um, the unfortunate thing uh, with floods is you rarely know when they're going to happen, how large they're going to be. 
um, if you do have warning, you might not be able to get your sampling equipment in there. So getting in before is a rare event. However, we did have that opportunity in, in at least one commercial office structure. And um, there's a timeline to this too, Joe. So some of the stuff we were doing 20 years ago, right, in the, in the late 90s. And at that time, all we had was culturing and, and microscopy. We didn't have DNA stuff. We didn't have real-time particle analysis and those types of things. So um, we had to rely on the good old tools. And these were, you know, impingers, Anderson impactors, and so on. But even with that information, we found, at least in the small numbers of homes that we had observed in La Junta, Colorado, that both the numbers and who we could grow, we were using culturing at the time, um, were different. Um, several months after the, the remediation had been done, and they had been re-inhabited. So as, as judged by the classical industrial hygiene tools, um, we did see differences both in number and what we could grow. Fast forward in 2005 in Katrina, uh, 2008, 2013, 2014, and 15 in Colorado, um, and using these new high-end tools, we saw the same thing. So um, early on, and in, in when DNA sequencing was becoming available to environmental science, um, we found differences at least between outdoors and indoors, and buildings of similar construction um, that had not been flooded. And then as this DNA technology has matured, that answer is still said the same. You know, months after remediation, after occupations occurred, we still see differences as judged by um, modern DNA sequencing. And it's got its own slop and variance, but within, uh, within what variance we anticipate with it, different microbes present in some microbe families. And then when we have used this real-time microscopy, we've also seen differences basically in load particle load, both um, biological and not. So hopefully that wasn't too much of a mouthful. Um, short answer, who's there and how many are there um, have been different, even with modern remediation, over the 20 years and the six floods that I've been involved with. And when you say different, is that, um, do you see less? Do you see... Well, it, it's the same or more in terms of microbe numbers mm-hmm. between indoors and out or homes of similar construction. Um, and then different is who on a very coarse level, you know, microbial families, we call them. And in some cases, genus and down to species level, if you can get into the really expensive sequencing, which I'm hoping is going to get cheaper. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's this, in, in terms of how much it's been the same levels, not statistically different or more. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, as much as we can control and keep in mind, these are relatively small studies, right? We're talking about tens, tens to 20, 30, 40, 50 homes max, mm-hmm. um, and, and one or two commercial buildings. So this is not an exhaustive study by any means. Sure. Whereas, you know, we, we see with, you know, the storms, storm damage in, in recent memory, um, Sandy through, uh, a lot of the superstorms that we've seen in the southeast, and we're talking about thousands, tens of thousands of homes, and or buildings, not just homes. So we have a little snapshot into really what's a movie in very different building stocks, and um, getting that data would be an important thing. Um, and and I'm all for now monitoring in 
um, high incident areas that haven't had floods, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can get a we can get a baseline in very different normal building stocks um, before anything ever occurs, and, and we have a better idea what normal is because hmm. right now we don't. Cliff, I think you may have a comment. I do. Thanks, Joe. You know, it goes back to you know a couple of things Mark said. Uh, who and how many? You know, I think in terms of the remediation, I think it depends who was there, Joe. You know, and it also depends. Uh, how many claims they had. You know, if you have a restoration company, you know, very competent, uh, and, you know, they send their best crew out there and they do a high-level remediation, I think it may affect the results versus a situation where the company has too many claims, that they have a bunch of temporary people, their staff is stretched, the staff is overworked, and, you know, maybe they're taking, maybe they're taking shortcuts, but I think the quality of the remediation, and, you know, we've talked about it many times, it's really not trying to kill stuff, it's really about deep cleaning, and, you know, deep cleaning takes time, and it takes effort, and, uh, you know, I think that that would make a significant difference. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you on that, and um, I've, I've seen it, um, I I've seen the what I consider the some of the best of the industry. Um, you know, I live in a in a relatively wealthy city. Um, when that flood hit here in in Boulder, um, there were you know lots of insurance. Um, some of the bigger remediation companies were here. Lickety split. That happened at, at my university and in, in my commercial building when we had a flood there, and these guys were in. It was a full core press. Uh, I mean, it was just impressive. I, I mean, incredibly well-organized, state-of-the-art equipment, um, not leaving a stone unturned, and at least by modern methods, in, in my university building being an example without naming the company that did it, um, I, I couldn't measure differences with real-time microscopy. I couldn't measure differences with, um, with modern DNA techniques. I mean, these guys were organized on it, multilingual they had multicultural crews um age and gender stratified it was it was really something and within a month we had our building back it was uh, pretty cool hmm. uh, i want to move on to uh, another topic here altogether although they're kind of you know interrelated because you're talking about some of these newer methods and and so on and uh, recently, you you hosted and helped organize the microbiology of the built environment conference. Uh, this would be, I guess, the fifth one, um, all sponsored by the Sloan Foundation. And and I'm wondering, you know, we 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 did a show from there with um, with several of the speakers, and I thought it was well received. Um, and then I'm I'm just wondering, from your perspective, what were the you know what were the big takeaways from this five years of you know research and spending a lot of money what what new things did we learn that that um and let's kind of I mean, i'm sure we learned a lot of new things but let, let's kind of move it toward um research to practice you know what did we learn that might help us inform practice boy that's a you know that's a great question and i was i was fortunate enough um to be um you know, the organizer of this, and together with the project officer from the Alpha P. Sloan Foundation, um, we were able to craft this program. Um, early on, uh, a lot of the investment in, in um, you know, around 2010, 
um, was going into what I'm going to generically call bioinformatics, and that is the ability to take a sample, surface water, aerosol, doesn't, want, doesn't matter, and in a short period of time, using genetic methods and computational methods, get an idea of who's there with a relatively high degree of confidence. So that's, that's where a lot of the investment from the Sloan program went in the early years. And over time, um, uh, over the five years, it, it really transitioned from um, the investment in being able to un, uh, confidently inventory the microbiology of, of inside um, to what's the effect or the potential effect of some of the things we've talked about today, building operation, building materials on that microbiology. So um, it, it, I really got to see a transition from dominance of biology and focus on the methods to dominance of using those methods to survey microbial response to what is there, i.e. building materials, wet it or not, and how the build, building is, is maintained and operated. So it, there was quite a, quite a transition, and um, granted that it was do dominated, as you saw, Joe, by, um, by those of us in academics, um, I, I think that transition was useful, going from microbiology, um, crossing the chasm to engineering, and that's still in its young state. Um, and when I got to the summer camp, I was humbled <laughs> by how the practicing field without these tools has progressed. And, and you know, we've got these expensive ways to do assessment, um, and the practitioners didn't, but clearly what they're doing they know is beneficial. Clearly what they're doing is getting rid of moisture, um, uh, you know, in, in mass, you know, on, on a large scale. And um, we were, did, did academics know that water is bad? Yeah. <laughs> where, water where isn't it should be. Um, so I, I think we're getting close to a transitional point to answer your question with that programmatic investment from Sloan um, where these could be available if they get cheap enough and if they get standardized for the practicing community. And I think that that was really the benefit of Sloan's investment. You know, um, the, last, the last of these conferences will actually be held in Washington next fall, um, and it will include agency representatives to see if funding in this arena um, for both fundamental and transitional research can continue. And, you know, that... Um the the combination you know bringing the the researchers and the practitioners together it was interesting and and kind of going along the lines of what you just mentioned i i was able to talk briefly to james scott um while at summer camp and he had mentioned on the show i'm going to say six or eight years ago now we had well, let's say five years or more ago we had him on he talked about the present past present and future of microbiology and at the time, he was saying, you know, within five years, uh, even less, we'll be able to take these samples, get all this information, it'll be inexpensive, and that's all happened. But then, you know, when I talked to him a little bit more about it, I said, you know, we can get that information, we can do this type of sampling, but the problem, according to him, is we just don't know what to do with all that information. We get a lot of it, but we don't necessarily know what it all means. Does that seem... Does that you know, kind of yes. go along with what you see? Yes, and, and I think I think what James is saying. I mean, and he's a very 
smart visionary guy, you know, and, and James wears both hats, right? He runs a, 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 a very um, good academic program in U, U of Toronto, and he also founded and runs a um, analytical laboratories to support indoor equality research, right? Uh, so yep. he, he gets best, he gets both worlds. Um, and, and what he's saying is, we have so much information now from the genetic sequencing or the potential to get so much information that there's a lot of noise and we have to figure out what signal and noise. And that's in the absence of pathogens, right? We don't have Legionella, we don't have tuberculosis, we don't have Stachy, and so on. So the DNA stuff is really great for identifying the bad guys. But it's turning out to be very rare um, that the bad guys are showing up, uh, at least with genetic sequencing. But, it, you know, it's, it is a mountain of information and um, discerning what's noise and what signal it is kind of tough, you know. Uh, and to give you an example, um, when we first started this business, we'd get maybe a thousand sequences from air samples in flood damaged homes. Now we're getting millions, millions. So identifying what the dominant players are, identifying the the uncertainty in that signal is kind of the next challenge for this bioinformatics community in the context of exposure in the built environment, like you just said. So I think that that's what James is referring to. Mm-hmm. And, and I would, I would agree with him. Yeah, because at this point we're, you know, we're still seeing a lot of spore trap sampling and, and we have better methods, but what do you do with all that information and, and how do you interpret it and how do you put it into action? I think I'm hoping that's where this whole microbiology of the built environment is heading um, as opposed to, you know, just, learning more about the microbiology, let's figure out what to do with that information once we have it. No, agreed. And that's, you know, I, I think some of, there are in, in, the, in the Sloan cohort and, and uh, um, at least the students I train, I think that Jeff trains that some of the people that were at the summer school, our trainees, we're sending them out with that purpose, you know, to, to use this in a translational but cautious way. These are not silver bullets, but they could be useful tools. Um, and, and that's kind of the idea is, is from our labs train kind of these next generation of industrial hygienists to transition these tools in there in a, in a thoughtful and useful way, but it's going to take time. Um, and, uh, um, we'll, we'll, you know, like we have in the medical realm, um, you know, it's it's going to converge to to some useful tools. Um, at least that's my hope. Well, and and maybe there's some middle, I don't know, middle uh, level here. You know, we've we've got the old techniques that have been around for many years, and and we're looking at kind of the future with this next generation sequencing stuff and all the DNA and so on and so forth. We had you on a show not long ago discussing, I'm kind of looking at it as a middle ground in the, in the work you did for the folks at Instascope um, with, you know, looking at particles and the size and shape of particles and then how they fluoresce and so on. And, and to me, that's kind of a middle ground. It's, and it's more useful information, at least. Um, you know, it's kind of at a level where we can actually take that information and make some decisions based on what we see. Um, the first question I had for you is, are you involved you know, financially with the Instascope other than doing some of the research for them? You know, we, 
we and I'm going to I'm going to speak for all of us in in North American universities, um, the engineers and researchers is um, we cannot have any interest or equity positions in um, in the research sphere, and it that's that is by contract pretty much by and large um, in in academe. So to get to that kind of question. Um, that is the ethical standard in our industry is, is we can do research and we, you know, we publish in our results with emerging technology or we do R&D, um, but this is all blind peer-reviewed stuff and, and we can't have financial interest in, in doing any of that. Um, I, I do have colleagues that have left um, academia to go work for companies when they see promising R&D come out or they've been you know, part and parcel of the industrial uh, or intellectual property, but no, we can't. We can't, okay. <laughs> unfortunately, do that. And and that's you know, that's it. No stock options, but research is fun, and and we do this job because we love it, um, and and like to see this you know technology forward in the in the profession. But I agree with you. I think that there's some a lot of middle ground to be had. We gotta side by side use these new techniques with the classical techniques to help the industrial hygiene field. Um, be able to interpret this new data, and and we got to standardize it, Joe. There are not standards in DNA sequencing. You know, we get a sequence and how we arrive at those sequences, and what software we use, and how many samples we take, and all this feeds into the uncertainty and the signal to noise ratio. So we have to, you know, there's a, there's a bit of work of of standardizing before we cross that that hard chasm in the industry. Bar looking for pathogens. That's that's, you know, that's just FBI stuff, right? It's how we bust criminal criminals. It's how we bust pathogens. But when you do these big ecological studies, we got to have a better handle on uncertainty. I'm wondering if maybe the um, one of the attempts at, at doing that is how the Army program developed. You know, they 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 were able to uh, look at the DNA of, of microorganisms and then they grouped them into those that were commonly found in outdoor samples and those that were commonly found in water damaged buildings and they put together the uh, relative moldiness index do you see that as maybe a, a potential model for for how you could take some of this next generation stuff and and make it more applicable to the real world uh i i i do obviously you know ermy's controversial but the framework of ermy's not i think it's a very it's a brilliant approach the architecture of of that where you get a distribution, right? You, you essentially get a probability distribution um, or a, what I call a rank order distribution. Um, it is, is a, just a, you know, it's a brilliant approach if you've got enough data. Um, and yeah, that's, that's where I do think, I, I see it. I'm, I'm not gonna use ERMI or that acronym, but the, the idea of, of using distributions, you know, is your home in the 50th percentile, 25th percentile, or you are an outlier at 90 percentile in terms of microbial load or certain types of microbes, you know, um, and I liken it to those of us who have children, you know, you bring your kids in and where am I on the growth chart? Is my child undernourished? Why are they not growing? Why are they not heavy enough? Or, um, you know, are they an outlier on the other spectrum? And what we, what I don't want to own is, is a property with you know, I'm 95th percentile, I'm off the charts in terms of microbial load or a certain type of ecology. And if we had that information broken down that way in the framework of rank order, I think it would be really useful for practitioners, both in terms of micro who's there and how many are there. And so, 
Um, and pre and post remediation, right? Are we as clean as other homes in my zip code after my house got wet? I want to know that. I want to know what's floating on the air and the surfaces in terms of, of you know, the other houses that are of similar age and construction near me that maybe didn't get hit by water or have some other unfortunate event. Sure. sure. And, and it seems to me that in some ways that's what the, the folks with the Instascope are trying to do, and, and you help them with getting the um, the signal, I guess it would be, from different types of microorganisms so that they could at least group it into, you know, the fungi and the bacteria and the pollen, et cetera, and then that you could get some. Yeah, so. Go ahead. So grossly, grossly what, what we did in, in our research group is evaluate the technology, not the product. Um, and this, this technology has actually been around for quite a while. It's matured and crossed from the military sector in terms of looking for biological warfare agents to the civilian sector. And it, did what, it does what you just suggested. It can successfully segregate bacteria, fungi, pollen, and, and uh, bacterial and fungal spores from each other in, 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 in a very gross way. Um, it might even be able to, and we're working on this um, with just fluorescence microscopy in general, separate different different families of uh, fungi um, and potentially pollens. I don't think we can with bacteria, but anyway, you know that yeah, that's the idea is to you know get a a confident breakdown of the total particle numbers, you know, classical OPC with lasers, and the biological fraction thereof, accounting for potential interferences. So. Um, I do think that technology is promising, uh, particularly for healthcare settings and ultra clean places. And I'm, I'm hoping, um, you know, and it's gonna, it's gonna work in really dirty places too, um, which, which I think, you know, these the data that's coming out, I think they must have more than 3,000 observations, will help us get to that in a rank ordered way. Um, research has to come, Joe, but but you're right, it's maturing. And. Just to give listeners a better idea of, of some of the work you did there, you you actually grew cultures, I guess, you know, of uh, known fungi like Aspergillus uh, fumigatus or, or whatever, and then you have that bioaerosol chamber, and I, I'm assuming you're able to, you know, release these into the chamber and then look at the signal that came back once you uh, did whatever, you know, whatever uh, magic that goes on in that box. And then you were able to tell if that was... You got it exactly right. It's, you know, it's just a big generic room, 10 cubic meters. Um, I have a a full suite microbiology lab. I can grow any bug you want, and we did, um, including pathogens, MRSA, cousins of tuberculosis, Legionella and so on. We aerosolize those in the room um, in a very safe and contained way. And then, um, along with fungi and pollens, we used this fluorescence technology um, to see if we could tell them apart. And using size, fluorescence, um, um, and basically those two combinations, um, we could we could ease not easily, but using an algorithm tell bacteria from fungi from pollen in their fragments so it was pretty cool but yeah you got the plan um we've got a freezer full of any microbe you want uh we grow it up and into a teenage state an adolescent state we aerosolize it to define humidity and temperature condition let it equilibrate with those conditions and then we take our samples and see where they land so this thing can tell a blue-eyed microbe from a brown-eyed microbe a blonde microbe from a 
brunette microbe and a fat microbe from a skinny one. You put all that information together and it helps you segregate bacteria, fungi, and pollens. But it's not going to give me a specific um, breakdown of Aspergillus fumigatus versus, you know, Cladosporium, whatever. I mean, it's, is that accurate to say? It, it is not. It, it, it can't discriminate between uh, genus and species, at okay. least not yet. Um, you know, some microbes are so uh, profoundly different, Stachy being one of them, um, that potentially in the future... Um, if we've done enough cataloging, um, we might be able to, to single out uh, a certain genera. And we've seen that with Stachy. We've seen it with Bacillus subtilis certain biological warfare agents. But that, the jury's still out on that, and, and I, I really I, I would be cautious with that. But right now, for acute ecological biological loading, what's floating around in there, I think it's a really nice counting tool. Hmm. And. You mentioned uh, when we talked, and we've got a. I, I realize we're running real low on time, but um, there, there's just so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, you mentioned before we started the show uh, that you had just published an article. Um, it was an atmospheric measurement, I think. And and uh, could you tell listeners a little bit more about that and what just kind of an overview of it and where they could get a copy sure. of it if possible? Yeah. Um, so this it's a relatively um, it's very established journal, um, Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics, and it has a, a measurement techniques arm, and it's called just that. It's called Atmospheric Measurement Techniques. And um, what's the beauty about this is it's, it's an open access journal. It's highly respected, and you can get it free. Um, so you can just go online and Google and look up uh, Hernandez Bioaerosol Fluorescent Catalogs, and uh, it'll pop right up, and you can download a PDF. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, this next generation of academic journals is really nice because it's, it's free and open to the public. But in a, in a nutshell, you'll find in there what we just discussed, um, a scientific report that unequivocally shows that with fluorescence-based microscopy, you can separate bacteria, fungi, their spores and fragments from pollens, and that the, the colored signatures that these uh, new generation of high-throughput microscopes can can distinguish um, uh, are, are really very distinct. Um, so it uses old school optical particle counting technology, right? Just a laser and use light scattering to size them. But together with fluorescence information, um, what this uh, particular investigation shows is with a, a large number of fungi, bacteria, and spores, there are more than 50 in this investigation, that you can really separate them with this high throughput microscopy. So it was pretty cool, as you know, uh, from a research a, a translational research standpoint, um, it was uh, really fun to be able to to work with this emerging technology to show that for an applied context. But atmospheric measurement techniques, it's called, is the journal, and uh, catalogs of um, fluorescence and optical properties um, are are the the keywords on there, and you, it'll pop up, and you can you can check it out. You can read it over a cup of coffee in in ten minutes. It's it's pretty available. You know, you, you just mentioned something that really caught my attention. I don't know why I hadn't picked up on this before, but um, you said it would pick up both spores and fragments. Uh, is that, did yeah. I hear that right? Yeah. Okay. Because that has been a... As long, um, as, as, long as the fragments are large enough. Okay. And I'm not I'm not talking about tiny stuff. So, um, you know, roughly the, the cutoff is about one uh, micron in diameter. 
that's the size of a dehydrated bacteria floating around that can go down to about a half a micron. But then resolution starts to get a little a little dodgy. Okay. So um, we know we can see pollen in their fragments. We know we can see fungi, fungi in some of the larger fungal fragments if the, if the force, spore split. Bacteria, no. That is not the case. But we can see whole cell bacteria and distinguish them from fungi and, and pollens. Interesting. And I, you know what? I, I, I want to say one more thing about that report. And it was really rewarding. We worked with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, in addition to the senior scientists at Droplet Measurement Technologies. So it was a nice industry agency, um, private um, a, a university cooperative that did this, that came together um, to, to make that investigation happen. And that, that was really um, Really nice. Daryl Baumgartner from Droplet Measurement Technology and Ann Pairing at, at uh, NOAA. Um, each of us had overlapping expertise, and, and it was just an, a great collaboration. I think we came out with, with some good information for the industry. What was um, NOAA's reason for their interest in that? Oh, this is very interesting um, and and relevant to climate change. So there, there's some information coming out in the scientific community that suggests that um, airborne microbes can serve as nucleation for uh, raindrops and precipitation, certain mm-hmm. types of microbes. And what NOAA is interested in is using this device for large-scale environmental studies, and they are. They're flying it on airplanes. I was part of an investigation that went to a volcanic island out in the middle of the Indian Ocean and used this technology, used a, a, a WIBS, a, um, a fluorescence microscope real-time, and they're looking for microbes in the troposphere hmm. and looking for interactions with clouds such that they believe, or the hypothesis is, and this is what NOAA is in the process of researching, um, that uh, they, microbes uh, participate in precipitation. Hmm. Uh, certain, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting, especially as you know, as the atmosphere becomes more humid. Um, this this idea that microbes participate in precipitation events um, it is uh, very ripe for research and very important for the planet. So that's why NOAA is involved. So maybe it might help in like cloud seeding and and things of that nature down the road. Yes. Yep. And- or understanding how biology plays into environmental processes as the planet warms the hypothesis is that um, we're going to see more microbes in the atmosphere and that may play a role in precipitation now keep in mind this is this is all you know burgeoning scientific theory this is this is coming out and has not been proved out yet but we're in the process of and this technology is a part of it of using um, or of vetting that theory hmm. it's hard to do right yeah, <laughs> and, and expensive. Flying this stuff on airplanes and climbing to the top of volcanoes with expensive scientific equipment is is uh, not the easiest job. So um, I salute Noah for doing that. And, and uh, anyway, I'm still <laughs> grateful I was able to participate in that project. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to have you on and uh, you know, enlighten listeners as to you know other other ways that this type of research is being used in, you know, areas maybe a little outside of the built environment, but still um, very interesting. Cliff, before we um, ask our final question, is there anything you, you'd like to follow up on or any questions that you have? No, Joe, I'm good, thanks. 
All right. Well, well um, Mark, it's been great having you. Before we let you go, though, we always like to give you the final word. Is there anything we missed or anything you'd like to add that uh, we missed or that, that you'd just like to add in general before we uh, wrap up for the day? Um, no, just thanks for having me. And I, I'm feeling real fortunate. It's such an exciting time, you know, with this new tech and um, to be part of the the potential crossover of this stuff into industry. And I, I love the summer camp and uh, learned a lot from the practitioners there. So that's it, really. I hope you can come again um, because it's a, it's a great learning experience. And um, I think you have a lot to offer for the folks up there that, you know, are hungry. They're, they're, that's a hungry group for knowledge up there. That's just a hungry group. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> well, again, thanks yeah, for joining Joe, us. Joe took care of everybody, that's for sure. Yes, he did. So. Uh, we're going to try and get him back. He hasn't been on in a long time, and our 10-year anniversary is coming up in a couple of weeks, so I think he'd be a great guy to bring back on. So I'm kind of throwing out a little seed right now and hoping it, it germinates down the road. But uh, thanks again for having uh, for joining us, and I, I look forward to seeing you uh, again somewhere down the road. Hopefully um, next year I'll learn in advance when that next Sloan thing is in D.C. because that's right down the road for me, and I'd love to see where that stuff's all going in the future. Very good. All right. Well, Thanks, gentlemen. thank you, Mark. Dr. Mark Hernandez for joining us this week on IAQ Radio. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks again to our guest, of course, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Um, Cliff will have a very interesting blog, I'm sure, this week. Uh, at the controls, John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners come back next Friday at noon for the next live broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 